This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. listeners, this is Amy Polly from the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Learning Teams embraces and respects the need for functional diversity and diversity of thought to be present and be an integral part of organizational and worker learning. This approach acknowledges and makes visible the differences that exist between genders in the workforce in order to identify health and safety risks and implement, maintain and improve effective solutions. Today, is an episode of our special podcast series on women's perspective, adoption and approach on the new view of safety and learning teams. Where Glynis McCarthy has a discussion with women who represent, organizational leadership, industry advocacy, safety practitioners, and regulatory authority. Glynis will explore that individual's own journey, the role of gender in safety and the potential of the new view of safety and learning teams. On today's show we have a health and safety practitioner. Glynis is joined by Sarah Bond, who owns and operates a rural-based organization called Be Safe Now. Sarah is passionate about people and the new view of safety. Please join Glynis and her special guest Sarah, as we learn and improve together. Hi Sarah, thank you so much for giving me some time today. Um, I just, I, I suppose I want to, this is an opportunity to kind of talk to you about your own journey. Um, to explore how, I suppose, um, explore the role of gender in safety and also to have a bit of a chat about um, the potential of the new view of safety in learning teams. So maybe we could start with, tell us how you got into health and safety. Ah, the Genesis story. This actually goes back quite a way because I started as a soup lifeguard in about 1993 and that action sort of ended up triggering a whole lot of different steps along the way. I was a senior surf lifeguard and was a medical officer and suddenly they let women in the Royal New Zealand Navy. And so I decided I was going to join the reserves because I didn't get seasick. And I just like being at sea, I've done a lot of sailing growing up. And from there, learned all sorts of amazing things from close quarter defence through to damage control school and all sorts of firefighting equipment. Meanwhile, I went to university and studied law, but I wanted to ski and I couldn't afford the lift passes. So I got into ski patrol so I could ski for free. And it was really interesting because I burned my law books and decided I was never going to practice and went off to do professional ski patrol in America. Blew my knee and then did some random things like outdoor instructing and working in law firms in England before coming back to New Zealand. And so this is about 2002, because I am, I frequently get told that I'm, uh, I look younger than I actually am, which I guess is a good thing. And I started off as a management trainee at Transrail. It was Transrail at that time, and I just fell into safety there. And in some ways I think People were pushing me to see if I would flinch or back off. But I started there and I had some phenomenal mentors. There was Nicole Rosie, who was head of uh, safety there, and there was an amazing woman called 
Margaret Gracie, who is Head of Human Resources, and they mentored me and were really supportive. And that's when I started studying my postgraduate uh, diploma for health and safety through Massey, and it sort of all went from there. I've worked in, what have I done? I've worked in oil and gas, I've worked in heavy manufacturing. I took a year off to sort of do an eat, pray, love, self-discovery moment and ended up in Franz Joseph meeting my partner of now 12 years, Jeff. And when Jeff decided that he wanted to go back to, or he wanted to go to surveying school, I started up my own consultancy in 2011. So I've been consulting for 10 years now. And my happy place is working with small teams that aren't big enough to have internal HR or health and safety people. And just, I really like smaller teams that are doing safety critical work where you can make change and make it stick rather than having to feel like you're turning a juggernaut around because everything's buried in bureaucracy. And- Oh, is it that that immediacy that you really like? So working with a small team that you can really impact on change rather than go through kind of change cycles. I, it's really interesting because I believe there's three types of safety. There's compliance safety, which is, you know, we're gonna do the bare minimum. There's the good old insurance safety, as in we have to do this to tick a box, and then there's boots on the ground safety. And I mean, again, I think, I mean, I also spent time doing search and rescue on Arthur's Pass and on the West Coast. I was a volunteer ambulance officer when I was on the West Coast. So it's fair to say I have literally seen every type of bodily fluids the human body's got. And I have seen big, nasty, gnarly things. So I have a very immediate visceral response to making sure that people are okay and not doing things that can, yeah, turn them into meat packs. So, yeah, I, I tend to use humour, but it, it's fascinating because I've got these degrees and letters behind my name. However, I genuinely think that surf lifeguarding, outdoor instructing, and ski patrolling has really been what's helped me in my safety practitioner role. How do you find um, being a female in some of these sectors? Um, I'm, yeah, how do you find being a female in these sectors? Well, I mean, it's really interesting because, you know, like if you go back to surf lifeguarding, at my tower, I was known as a senior guard and a medical officer. But if I went back to, if I went to another surf tower, and again, we're talking mid 90s here. I still felt like I had to do my run swim run and almost go back to bronze competency and then earn the right to call myself a senior guard and a medical officer, whereas another guy would turn up on the tower and he was just automatically accepted. And then it was interesting in in both the Navy and Ski Patrol because I what I did is I just got technically good at things. So I was very good with communications in the radio and I was very good medically. And so the fact that I was never ever going to keep up with the guys, like I can remember going on bowling runs in the morning and all I'd be, I'd be carrying the deck cords because that was the lightest and I'd just be watching guys' backsides disappear up over ridges. Um, and I would get there in the end, it would, it would be fine, but it was just acknowledging my limitations and finding ways to shine. I think in rail it was really interesting because in some ways I found my femininity a weapon in itself and the fact that you know it was really easy 
for me to say, oh, look, I'm confused. I don't understand what's going on here. Can you, can you talk to me about that? And like, I didn't have any ego because I wasn't a locomotive engineer and I wasn't a trained shunter or something like that. So that was, that was really good. I think the oil industry was probably the hardest and the lesson I learned there was sometimes I was saying the right thing, but I was the wrong person to be saying it. So I needed to work out what the whole ecosystem was, understand what positional and functional power was, and then work out how to achieve my goal, even if I couldn't stand in front of it. And, but I mean, I, I was talking to Brett the other day and about three weeks ago, I had a quite a big hashtag me too moment as in how is this still happening in 2021? The difference is now I am that little bit older and was able to just act with dignity and gracefully exit the situation without scratching or swearing or losing it. So it's, I've had my forged steel moments. I find sense of humor gets me a long way. And sometimes just knowing how to look at the team and say enough and just use silence rather than trying to educate or browbeat people. I mean, people are people, it is what it is. I've got some feminist friends that get really upset when they're like, oh, how could you be treated like that? And it's like, well, it's a male-dominated environment. I choose to be there. I'm working out how to be successful and how to keep my dignity. And yeah, trying to be one of the boys never really works. So I guess I've just made it up as I've gone along. And I'm sure every woman has their own story and their own battle scars in the industry. It's very much just a matter of seeing what works for you. I was talking to a colleague of mine the other day on in a um, in a really sort of rugged sort of workplace, um, mm. very male dominated, very sort of heavy male sort of working culture. Um, and we were talking about as the lead health and safety person on site, where she had strengths and where she had to adapt her practice. Yeah. Um, for Absolutely. her, the strength was really about coming alongside, um, mm. about getting the guys to open up to have that conversation sometimes where she sort of sometimes she felt that she fell into mother mode which is not the role that yeah. she wanted to be in and so yeah. it was about being really clear of that herself and thinking about how then do i position this back so this is your issue that you need to be dealing with and kind of let me help you to explore it rather than me take it on and i think that kind of echoes what you were saying before about sometimes it doesn't necessarily have to be the voice of but you know you come alongside you don't have something to prove maybe the the skill set i think that uh, females in general as a generalization in this field are able to do is kind of come alongside people and start that dialogue without necessarily having to be you know I've got to be the top dog in this actually we can start the conversation and then look to see where we've got commonalities as opposed to it being quite adversarial at times on site um, although yeah. I, that has evolved for me over time like for example if you went back into the 2000s I tried to gain positional power through my technical knowledge. And you learn very, very quickly that what you learn from a textbook or someone's grand idea on health and safety doesn't necessarily apply when you're standing in a smoker room with a whole room full of guys who don't want to bar of you. So that, again, learning to let go of my ego has been a key thing, listening very carefully. And I, but I also think that in my earlier years, 
I did that pastoral role, like you have to be very clear about your boundaries. You know, you're not a counselor, you're not a psychologist. You're not a mum. Yep, you're no, not a sister. I'm, and you're certainly not a girlfriend. Oh, you know, no. Yeah, no, I know that yeah. one well. That's, that's super fun as well. And especially when, you know, just someone corners you somewhere and asks you out. And I don't know. I, I don't know what it was when I was younger. I was just wasn't that I was naive, it was just the fact that I was so focused on doing my my own job and getting things done and being part of the team that when someone who I was trying to get on side or whatever suddenly wanted to ask me out, it, it often just left fielded me and I'd normally politely decline. And even, but even now, like, you know, in construction, if we have an end of project party, I might go along to say one beer in the speeches and then I just exit. I don't. I don't put myself in the position where that can happen. I know one of the things that I've done, um, certainly as I've, you know, I suppose as I've aged, is I'm much clearer now about expectations. Mm -hmm. So if I'm out on site and I'm observing practice of workers, I set the boundaries. So I set how long yeah. I'm going to be there for. I set who it is that I'm going to be with and how that how that conduct will kind of take place. Yeah. I've sort of learned the hard way of going out onto forestry sites and then saying, if you need to go to the bathroom, it's behind that bush. And yeah. suddenly have thinking, you can guarantee if I drop my pants that actually there'll be no workers now, but as soon as I drop those trousers, there will be a hundred workers coming up behind me having a giggle. And in my case, about the woman from Auckland and her new yeah. and her yeah. white party bum. Um, yeah. So I've sort of, what I have learned to do is negotiate much more clearly about what I think is the expectations. Um, whereas I used to be a little bit more, I suppose, trusting and a bit sort of naive. And there were times when I was really pushed out of my comfort zone and then I'd use humor to kind of deflect and then yeah. I'd be sort of saying things like you know well my husband doesn't like it when um, it's probably one of my favorite catch-all phrases because I find that that works I put that really early on in the conversation and then that seems to negate some of those issues do you think the role of women in safety I mean what do you think brings kind of the um, I suppose, what do you think are the benefits of having gender diversity in health and safety? Because it predominantly has been in the past a very male-oriented profession. That's certainly being challenged. And I think that women bring something different to health and safety. What do you think it might be? Oh, look, I'm, I just don't like making generalizations about all women. Um, I know that from my own experience, Often I'd be able to read a room and, you know, like you talk about cutting the fuse to the powder keg, like working something out when there's just a little bit of niggle going on as opposed to when people are threatening to wrap a full by two around someone's head out the back of a container. I found that I would bring to the group that I could pick those niggles up. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure it was because I was a female and hugely empathetic. I think a lot of it was particularly with all my medical training is you learn to look at trends and you can see when someone's off whack and taking that moment to find out, you know, why are they out of kilter and then supporting them through that quietly works really well. I think the other thing is if I could diffuse arguments, you know, and, and just walk in and say, okay, enough, let's talk about what's happening here, or even just, look, you go and have a break. The other thing is, you know, if someone was going through something really hard on site, like say someone 
was, you know, breaking down in tears because of something that happened to their wife or their kid, you know, I was quite okay with sitting there and talking them through it and getting them to a safe, quiet place and looking after them. Whereas, you know, a lot of the team might just be sitting back going, and, and it's, it's especially hard in those rugged environments when often it's the biggest, toughest one who is the unspoken leader and holds a lot of mana on the site. Then when they break down, the whole site just panics because that's their rock, being human. So yeah, again, that's just been my experience. Where do you see the kind of, I suppose, where do you see the potential of um, women in safety in terms of that new view and, and of learning teams that kind of, that sit often within that new view? I found the new view just sat very naturally with me because I've always been a really curious people person. I've always been all about treating people with dignity and respect and making sure that people were heard. And I think, I've also, you know, one of the things that I really interesting in Say Rail, there's just such finite set defined rules that you have to follow. And yet that first statement of error is normal, like accepting that people are human and blame fixes nothing. You know, I find that really, really important and has always been a part of my practice, yet once I started reading Todd Conklin and getting my head around Sydney Decker and other people's work, I just found it all—it already aligned with how I was behaving in reality, even if it didn't necessarily align with the systems that I was working in. Although I have to be very honest and say, I very much take my clients now as a consultant, as is, where is and I use whatever tool or methodology is going to work for them, their people and their language. And, you know, I think Deirdre from Australia, she said, you know, she wished she'd never talked about safety one and safety two. Well, I don't either. Like, I don't use any of those easily. Ide- I, I wouldn't even call it a, um, I wouldn't even call things learning teams. Like I had lots of, uh, you know, I actually have called things an after action review and what I've actually been doing as a learning team, but the client didn't know about it, that that's what it was, and it got a really good result. So yeah, arose by any other name. Approach. Yeah, very, very pragmatic and very, very, who's my audience? And if something I'm doing is alienating and switching off my audience, I'll reach into the toolbox and see what else is there. Yeah, and look, I, I totally agree with it. And I think that that's what you have to do. Mm. I think that the more we label things, actually, the more we limit things at times. Absolutely. Um, and so what we really need to do is find out what does the, the group that we're working with or the, the team that we're working with, what resonates for them and build it from that and very much kind of construct together. I think that we lose so much value of what we're really trying to achieve the moment oh, yeah. we step out and think that we're the experts or that we're the ones that hold all of the knowledge, that we are then going to kind of pass over to people in, in almost a maternalistic or paternalistic view. Um, I think that, yeah, that you do have to be expedient. And I think that that's the value of learning teams, really, is that learning teams is about a facilitated conversation. You can call mm. it what you like, but at the end mm. of the day, it's about somebody taking a, one person or a group of people on a journey. 
yeah, that's well yeah. scoped, that's yeah. thinking about how do we really start to um, delve into the problem and how do we get over to thinking about the solution without it being highly prescriptive. Well, and I think for me, half the thing is, can we please work out what the actual problem is first? And it's also, I mean, I find it interesting because I know you and Brett often talk about soap time. Well, for the last decade, I was like, well, we need to just marinate on this. So my words marinate, but it, it's exactly the same sort of thing. Although I do have to say that for me, one of the most disappointing things at the moment is seeing some of the arguments that are happening on say somewhere like LinkedIn between the health and safety sphere where things are getting almost evangelical and it's very much othering and I just find it embarrassing and a little bit sad like I don't seem to see lawyers or accountants or even engineers being so abusive to each other and getting really quite personal you know, it's, and it, it's not a joke, it's not funny, it's actually straight out bullying. And this is my profession, like it's just embarrassing. Yeah, it certainly is a profession we're going through some change. Mm -hmm. And you can certainly see people digging their heels in and you can see yeah. people kind of scrambling to, to kind of adopt the latest, newest paradigm and say, yeah. this is wholeheartedly how we do our practice. But I think if anybody actually gets out and does the work, um, and particularly when you work with multiple clients, you soon realize that actually what you think is a philosophical idea, actually that's not generally in line with what the people that you're working with, they want a they want a solution to a problem yeah and they are the experts so it's how do you get them to actually uncover really what is that problem how do they scope it out how do they really analyze it and critique it so how do they create their own you know solutions and I think I mean it's also really interesting because of like you know if you take any business and say do a pestle analysis analysis where you like what what's the political environment what's the legal environment what forces are affecting the industry and look at it from that perspective, then look at the individual business itself and you know what's their internal communication and cultural style like. If I want to change something, who are the key players that I need to get on board? Um, it feels more like a sales and marketing exercise of getting to know the audience as opposed to turning up and saying, hey, here's my magic formula, whatever that may be. Yeah, I often get worried when clients ask me for, well, how do you solve this? Yeah, I yeah. get really worried when they sort of want to push it over to me when I think, well, you know, when it's very clear that they've got the expertise hmm. yeah, and that I can go in and help to facilitate that conversation and, and help them perhaps to, you know, smooth out some of those edges and help them with some of the outputs. But actually, I haven't got the solution for them. They know their business. They know how to do the, their job. I, I don't know that. So for me, it's about how do you come alongside a group of people and help them to work out what it is that they want. You know, as a consultant, those hardest projects are when the client says, I want you to do this they haven't formulated in their head yet you haven't formulated in yours and actually you're left with this thing that's half cooked that you somehow have to turn around into something else i call that um the hogwarts room of requirement mm -hmm. like they're just standing there looking at me going i want you to do this but i don't actually know what this looks like or um how you're going to make it happen and then how it's going to stick and be sustainable in our business but you're the answer and 
I don't know. I I am very careful. Like I have quite an in-depth scoping meeting with my clients, which I actually joke about being my scratch and sniff test. But basically I ask a whole lot of questions and if I don't get a sense that they've got an intent to do some good work and do some good reflection, um, I tend to just, you know, I'm a bit naughty. I'll, I'll say, oh, look, um, I think this project is bigger than what I thought it was and I don't have the capacity or it's not my technical expertise. And it's because of I'm now at a stage in my life where I, I want to set myself up to win when work with people that I like and I think it's also like one thing about not being a practicing lawyer is I don't have to follow things like the first cab off the rank rule. I can choose who and what I work with. And often, like I just just questioning, like when someone says to me, oh, I want you to do X, I'll often say, oh, so tell me the story about when you decided X was important. And once you start going down that rabbit hole, you. Yeah, you just get a much bigger picture of what's really going on and you know what are their issues what are their needs what's a nicety what's a necessity it's 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 a complex process and it's definitely not simple and it's definitely not a magic formula yeah no i i completely hear you where do you want to be in five years time so what what is the kind of the the goal for you know we're five years down the track what does that look like for you as a health and safety practitioner actually interesting you asked this because at the beginning of this year I went and did some navel gazing and soul searching and I'm really really grateful at the moment because I'm doing some work with Nathan Anad and his work at Novellus and I would love to say that I'm a fully fridged changed my LinkedIn profile to say that I'm, I'm consulting with Novellus because I still feel very much like a junior. It's amazing how I still suffer from imposter syndrome even now. I genuinely, I want to do more blogging. I would actually like to get into my own podcasting. I would really like to travel to America and go and meet some of the people over there. Um, I've already met Todd Conklin, but people like the Safety Justice League and Abby Ferrari and just getting to know what their world world is like. Um, even there's people that are podcasting in, um, in England as well. I think, yeah, just again, consulting on good, solid projects where I feel like I'm making a difference and that people are setting themselves up to do their own work. Like one of my favorite clients, believe it or not, they had a telearch audit and I insisted that I wasn't going to be there. Like I coached them, we were all set up, they knew what they were doing and they, they nailed it. And to me, that was a huge win. They didn't need their safety person sitting like a guru in the corner of a room. Um, the irony of it is that, uh, you know, probably from a, business perspective it's it's not exactly earning the most hours um but yeah that's that's just just the way i work i'd, I'd like to learn more i have my postgraduate diploma i would actually like to say that i've got my masters the interesting thing is is i'd like to study a lot more in human factors um that's not necessarily offered in new zealand and i don't know whether going to australia would be an option and I think that, um, well, you know, in five years' time, 
Ollie's going to be 10 years old, 11 years old. I hope he's still talking to me. I hope I'm fit enough to keep skiing and mountain biking with him. And I hope Jeff and I are still going really strong as well. And it seems so much of really what you're talking about here is about empowerment, isn't it? It's about getting a skill set, about being able to utilise that skill set and then about sharing that skill set. Um, I suspect that this is a really nice way for us to finish this podcast. Um, so I thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been really enjoyable talking to you and I really look forward to following what happens in your own journey over the next five years. So thanks very much, Sarah. listeners for being part of this podcast. We would love to hear your learnings or other topics you would like us to explore about learning teams. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and give us your feedback. Become part of the community of practice with learning teams. Go to www.learningteamscommunity.com. Support the authors of the practice of learning teams. Purchase the book from Amazon.com or go to www.learningteamsbook.com for an inside look and other free book resources from the authors. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.